Hello and welcome. Thanks for joining us. It's Thursday, January 21st, 2021. And Brent, we've been doing a lot of presentations. We've been doing a lot of Outlook type events, most of course, all digital. Been getting a lot of questions from great questions from the audience and in our inbox. And we want to talk through a few of those today and share a few ideas and a few topics that have been have been coming up along the way. Policy-related questions, Brent. The first one we have is how will the Biden administration shape farm policy? I've done quite a few sessions lately, and this question, some some version of this question comes up in almost every one. And uh, I think there's a lot of uncertainty or maybe even angst about what might be in store for the farm sector. And I uh, usually try and say, well, these tend to be rather slow shifts or as opposed to big ones. But I do think um, we will start to see probably a little more emphasis on things like environmental policy from this administration. But keep in mind, the farm bill is going to drive a lot of that. And there's only so much that the administration can do outside of that kind of legislation. So I think the next time the farm bill comes up to be redone, I think you'll probably see the White House much more involved in that than they were perhaps the last time, just in part because they're controlling both sides of Congress right now. Um, I know, David, we, uh, I think, have a backgrounder probably coming here in the next few weeks on some things like carbon policy that might get talked about. So we're going to have some things on the website about that because we do think there's going to be things coming. But in the short term, I don't know that there's a huge amount of change in kind of traditional farm policy coming, but there will always be some movement. To add on to that, I think one of the things I've heard a lot is keep in mind, President Biden is a senator by training, right? So I think he's going to be more involved in these legislative issues just because that's that that's how he was spent all of his career. So he's very familiar with getting things through Congress. I don't know if that's a, you know a level one thinking or if that's a level two observation, but I think it's going to sometimes it's helpful to remember where people come from and their their background, right? And he spent a lot of years in the Senate. I believe he's sworn in the Senate in 1970. So lots of lots of history there. Um, the second question kind of ties into this a little bit. And I'm going to set this up and I'll let Brent uh, do the hard part. You know, what's going on with ethanol production and, and what's the long term? I've been thinking about three buckets, three challenges for ethanol. I guess the short, the first one is a short duration and the third one is the long-term issues. In the short run, there's the COVID-related situation, right? How much gasoline is the U.S. going to consume? How does that stack up with the EPA's calculations and estimates? If you want a job forecasting U.S. gasoline consumption, I think there's a, you know, that would be a really tough job, but there's probably a lot of interest in that service here in 2021. That's a huge uncertainty. The second one is enforcement of the RFS and how the new administration might proceed with that. And the third picture or third point is the long run and battery powered and fuel efficiency and all those. And I guess the point here is you can't, even as we move past 2021, these questions are going to linger for a long, long time. And there's different issues to sort through. So Brent, I'll let you decide which one of those to tackle. I think you you really highlighted kind of the short, the intermediate and the long run issues pretty well there. What we have here is kind of the trends in corn usage over time. And 
This is back in 2017, 2018, about 14.8 billion bushels of corn used. It has declined substantially to 18 and then 19, you know, declined a lot down to 13.8 billion. So we lost almost a billion bushels of usage over those two years. Now, the interesting thing I think to look at is where those declines in usage came. And in the first year in 17, it was 227 million bushels in ethanol, then lost another 526 in 1819. That is a lot, folks. That's 750 million bushels of corn demand that kind of evaporated from ethanol usage. And if you wonder why there's such a fuss over the small refinery exemptions, that right there will tell you why. Now, interesting, in 1920, we picked up 200 million bushels. So kind of think about offsetting that, but there's still a 500 million bushel hole. And that's a lot when you're talking to commodity like corn. So I think there's reason to be really concerned. Now, I think the good thing is that my guess is the Biden administration will not be nearly as amenable to uh, letting the refiners out of their obligations under the RFS as certainly as first Pruitt and then Wheeler as EPA administrators basically really like to grant those things. And you saw they granted a couple. I, I didn't dig into it too much. They grant a couple on the way out the door. I'm sure those will get challenged. But ultimately, that's concerning. And it's concerning because of the longer-term trends you talked about, David, where fuel efficiency, which I think the Biden administration is kind of trying to reinstate fuel efficiency requirements that the Trump administration waived or threw out. So that just means probably less gasoline, other things equal. That means it's going to be harder to get the ethanol blend in the gasoline supply. So I think it's definitely something that is going to continue to be problematic in the corn usage space. One way I think summarize this is that we're not saying ethanol is going to zero, but what's important to recognize is ethanol is no longer a growth. It's no longer a growth market. It's no longer a growth for corn usage. And that's a huge departure from the last 15 years. Like we had about, I guess about 13 years of more ethanol and more corn being used for ethanol. And now we've seen that sort of we're sort of fluttering at the top. We've probably seen, um, you know, we've came off the peak a little bit. The question is, where does that go in the future? I think we can have a long lengthy debate as to where it goes, but the reality is, is the trend is going to be flat to slightly lower, maybe a lot lower, but flat to lower. There's not a lot of growth here in this market. That's a reality we have to think about for the next several, several years. Cause it's been the, one of the biggest single demand sources or sources of new demand in agriculture aside from China in the last few right. years. So, Well, and, and that brings up the other interesting point on this chart and, and the corn chart can illustrate it, but the soybean chart would make it really dramatic. The other big thing we lost, yeah, there's 372 million and negative 288 and that's exports. Now, not all those usually go to China, but if you looked at the soybean usage numbers, you'd see really big declines in exports. And that happens to coincide with the trade war, of course. 
big increase over here. So actually we're, we're over that now on the corn side, but on soybeans, that those, that trade war uh, was, was a real problem. And I don't think the Biden administration is going to, I don't think they're going to be particularly easy on China, but I don't think they will ramp us back into, we're just going to tear up phase one and we're going to go back to, back to the mattresses on a trade war with China. So they will probably engage them differently than the Trump administration did. And we can debate for a long time whether that was the right thing to do or whether it was the right strategy or right tactic. I think they, they will try to pressure China. I don't know how effective they'll be, but those clients and experts were also big problem, more so on soybean side. I think that's a, a great thing to keep in mind. I think one of the things I read from that book, Superpower Showdown, worth reading. There's an article about that. One of the points they made, and I hear rumblings out of the, the Biden administration, is that the other way that we haven't talked a lot about in the last four years is how do you compete with China is make investments in the U.S., invest in the U.S. to make the U.S. more competitive. I think that might be a tool that the Biden administration might lean on. But I think, Brent, you're right. I think there's going to be course adjustments, not a lot of tearing up. Think about the showdown we had over NAFTA, right? I don't think this is in the cards. Or this hasn't been telegraphed so far in this administration. Also keep in mind, phase one was a stepping stone to some grander plan. And there was always questions as to what was going to happen after phase one. There was, in the COVID, I think, pushed that back a little bit. But there's always been what's next. And I think we have two levels of next, right, with this new administration. So to wrap this up, Brent, uh, two more questions with the recent actions by the Fed to lower interest rates, do you see the probability of the U.S. moving to negative rates like other countries? And if so, how will that affect the farmers' access to capital? During the sessions I did, I got a lot of questions somewhere along the lines of this. For one, I don't see the U.S. moving to negative interest rates. That would be a real surprise, I think. Chairman Powell has been pretty clear that he's not really interested in that. I don't think there's much evidence that negative interest rates have worked anywhere very well. So I think that's pretty unlikely. With respect to access to capital and farmers' access to capital, I, I would argue in the United States that is really not much of a problem whatsoever. Farmers, for the most part, have plenty of access to capital. Access to capital is not really a problem in this country. Um, we have very good financial markets, very good agricultural financial institutions. I don't think that that is going to be an issue. Now, the other issue that you know sometimes got brought up was what about inflation? Uh, what impact might inflation have on land values? All that kind of stuff. You know, I think that's a reasonable question to ask at this time period. We Fed's done a lot of increase the money supply significantly. So there's there's reason, I think, to, to kind of wonder about inflation. But the biggest thing I always say when I answer a question like this is, well, what, what is inflation to you? What, do you? what does that mean? Are we talking 3 and 4% inflation? Yeah, I can see some of that happening. Are we talking 7, 8, 9% inflation? That, I think, is not as likely in the short term. And if it were to come, I think the Fed might be so inclined to, to try and stop it before it got going to that level. But I think the Fed's going to be pretty permissive of inflation when it comes in the short term, but I'm talking, you know, low single digit inflations. 
I think Jay Powell has actually made it very clear that um, they're not even going to talk about quote unquote inflation until they see 2%. That's the goal and they haven't seen it. And so they're not even going to entertain that conversation and, and or even raising rates until we clear that 2% threshold. But that's a really great point because in a way, three or 4% inflation might actually feel good to a lot of sectors of the economy, right? And that actually might be a, a feature, right? We actually might want to start to see that. I'm not saying that's, I don't want to make a sweeping claim. I'm just saying if we start to see three, 4% inflation, that could be viewed as a positive thing in the economy and in the, in the economic growth, especially coming back off the pandemic. The other thing I'll add, Brent, is if we think about negative rates, sometimes people view us like, okay, we're at zero, we've ran out of tools, right? The, the next step, is to go negative. And I think what we've seen in the Fed is they've been doing a lot of other activities to avoid that step. So they haven't used up all their ammunition. They have used a lot of ammunition. They've used up this interest rate, moving it to zero, but they've moved on to other tools and they've been very effective at keeping the markets open. So I think that's one thing to make sure we keep in mind is that there's other options. And it's kind of interesting. They keep creating new, <laughs> new ways of supporting and stimulating the markets and keeping the credit markets open. And actually, the drama that came out of the Fed minutes is that there were several governors that uh, actually talked about when they might start tapering all of these asset purchases they had. And that kind of caught some people by surprise. So, you know, there's some indication, I think, that, that maybe things are picking up better on their end than maybe we thought. Uh, Larry Summers had a pretty interesting article out a while back saying he didn't think we should do the additional $2,000 stimulus check, which, you know, he's Democrat. It was kind of interesting that he would say that. And basically he said, you know, we run the risk of overheating the economy by doing it. So kind of interesting. Uh, There's a lot of voices coming and some of them aren't saying what you would normally think they might be saying. Now, the reason where it could get interesting in agriculture is this chart here. And we've talked about this, uh, I think, before, but we just want to reiterate it because I think if one thing, I'm, I mean, I would put a high probability on that's the farmland values are going to show some pretty robust activity here uh, in the next year or so. And, and here's why. I mean, this is a capitalization rate on farmland, which is sitting right around 3%. This is Indiana data, but you're going to see similar charts for pretty much any state you look at. So 3%, here's the 10-year treasury yield, still below 1%. So there's farmland starting to look pretty attractive. This is kind of a spread. And during the slowdown, the ag economy, we saw Indiana farmland values actually fall for five years, just like they did in the 80s. They just didn't fall nearly as much. Why not? Well, income fell about as much, but interest rates dropped significantly during this time period, and that really supported farmland values. And today, again, now interest rates remain low, if not even, you know, are actually lower than they have been, and you have higher income. And I think that leads to farmland prices going to be pretty strong, cash rents going to be pretty strong, in my opinion. So Brent, that leads us to the last point I want to talk about. We have a new question in the Forecast Network talking about Indiana farmland values. Those values come out. It's a June survey. They published in the beginning of August. And we asked, what's the probability of that value being 10% 
higher than 2020. June tw- August, the June 2020 results released in August 2020. And Brent, you and I struggled mightily with where do we draw the line on that? So it surprised us how frequent, and you have to go read the article. We're not going to dig, we're running close on time here. We're not going to dig into it too much. It surprised us how frequent 10% and higher rates of change actually are in history. You and I were at Purdue when these surveys were being done during the boom years. And I kind of forgot we had 20 plus, we had three years of well over, I think over 15%, three consecutive years of more than 15% rates are definitely over 10%. I forget the exact number, but three consecutive years of big numbers. This is one of those data sets where if I saw a headline that says 10% increase in Indiana farmland values, it would shock me, right? Like it would seem like a big number. When you look in the history and you look at, this is a survey and they're subject to a lot of movements and there's a lot of things going on here. We got to be careful with those headlines, right? So this is a question we're going to help you think through this and think through the past data and help you be a better consumer of that content and, and all this, this information that we're going to start to have when it comes to farmland values. And we're getting a lot of emails from listeners. Keep sending those. We enjoy those. We follow those closely, but there's a lot of interesting things going on in the farmland market as Brent mentioned and alluded to. It actually surprised me how frequent 10% plus increases were. I when I first saw the question, the number was a little higher, and I thought, well, that that doesn't seem so realistic. And then the more you start looking at the data, you, you realize that, well, it's it's certainly a possibility at 10% for sure. So it'd be interesting to see how everybody does on that question, what the consensus is. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. I believe we're at our time uh, today, I actually lost track of time. Brent, do you know? <laughs> I don't know either, but I think it'll be about right. <laughs> we'll save uh, we'll save our, the rest of our list for next week. But thanks, everyone, for joining us. We'll catch you next week. In the meantime, stay curious.